good morning. If you would uh, open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to begin a study through this epistle to the church at Ephesus this morning. Before we begin, let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we bow before your throne of grace this morning. We bow with grateful and thankful hearts. How thankful we are to come before the God of heaven and earth. Besides you, there is none else. And to lay out, to cry out to you, our hearts cry, our praise, our thanksgiving, and our petition. Father, how we praise you that you're God alone. How we praise you that your will is always done in all places. And oh, how we thank you that your will is that your people would be redeemed by the blood of your son. That they'd be called out by your gospel. That they'd be given life by the power of thy spirit and kept by the power of thy grace. One day that they would be glorified together with Christ our Savior. Father, how we thank you. And Father, we beg of you this morning that you would enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you'd open your word to our hearts. Enable us to see Christ and to believe on him, to, to learn more of him, that we might trust him more fully. What we ask for ourselves here in this class, we ask for our children's classes and for your people, wherever they meet today, Father, cause your word to run well for your glory, for the good and edification, the salvation of your people. Father, this is such a, a difficult dark day and I know every believer of every generation has said the same thing that we all feel like we live in such a difficult and dark day father in this day we pray that you'd show us your glory the redemptive glory of Christ our savior and father we dare not forget to pray for those who are hurting and sick and need you especially here and in other places thy people that you brought into the deep deep waters of of trouble and trial. Father, we pray for them. We pray that you'd heal, that you'd comfort the hearts of your people, and that you'd give them a special portion of your presence. Father, again, I beg of you that you'd bless us. Bless us with thy spirit as we look into thy word. For it's in Christ's name, for his sake we pray. Amen. I've titled the lesson this morning, The Saints of God. Now, this book of Ephesians is one of my very favorites. Uh, I often read it just for my own enjoyment. I find such pleasure just reading through this book. This epistle sets forth the, the mysterious glories of God and the salvation of his people. It sets it forth so clearly. If you don't believe it, it's not because you don't understand it. It's because you just don't believe it. This, this is set forth so clearly. We understand what this is saying. And this both teaches God's people and at the same time it comforts our hearts. Now this letter is written to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus was a a large, a a very wealthy, a metropolitan kind of town. It was full of business and trade and education. And the whole city was given over to idolatry. There was, this was the I guess, from what I read, kind of like the, the center of where the worship of goddess of Diana was in all the world. Ephesus was kind of the center of it. 
that a magnificent building built to this goddess Diana. And the whole city was given over to it. It, it, it affected their religion. It affected their daily lives. It affected their, their business. You know, after the Apostle Paul had been there preaching for a little bit, the silversmiths of that town got together and they're trying to find a way to get rid of this man, Paul, because it, people believed the Christ that he was preaching. And as they believed the Christ that Paul preached, well, the silversmith's business went down because fewer people are buying these little statues, the idols of, of Diana. There was a big uproar about that. They're trying to get rid of the, the Apostle Paul. This, this idolatry was so entrenched in, in the daily life of the whole city. And if you want this afternoon, you can read about that in, in Acts 19, but that's basically what happened. But in this idolatrous, worldly city, Almighty God in that city had hidden away some of his elect, some of his precious gems. The Apostle Paul went there and preached in a very large, blessed, very blessed church was raised up in that city. You remember before Paul was departing for Rome, he knew he wouldn't be back. He knew he was going to go to, to Rome to die. Remember who he called together to him? The Ephesian elders. And he talked to them and said, you'll see my face no more. And he talked to them about preaching the gospel, about preaching Christ and, and staying faithful. You know, that was a pretty good-sized group of very respected men that came from this church. This was a large and a blessed church. But now turn over to Revelation chapter 2. We know how the, the church of, uh, at Ephesus started. Um, we knew how, how it grew and how the Lord blessed it. But the very last thing we read in Scripture about the church of Ephesus is in Revelation 2. Remember, the Lord had those letters to the seven churches and he told the church at Ephesus, now you got plenty of works. You haven't quit. You haven't quit believing. But, he said, I've got something against you. You've left your first love. Now they've stayed doctrinally straight. Um, they didn't quit in the faith. But they left a love and a tenderness for Christ. They, let, they, they lost a tenderness for the gospel. They hadn't lost the truth of it. But they lost the tenderness of it, the love of it. Look at Revelations 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I'll come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now the Lord says, because of this, you've left your first love. He says, I'm going to remove the candlestick. You remember the candlestick is the pastors in those, those churches. He's going to remove the pastor so the gospel is not preached there in truth anymore at all. And notice this, Lord didn't say he's going to extinguish the candle. He didn't say he's going to stop the light altogether. He said, I'm going to move it. I'm going to remove it from here and I'm going to put it over here. He's going to raise up a pastor. He's going to take the pastor out of this place and raise up a pastor in a different place. Robert Hawker said about that, the candlestick is a movable piece of furniture. You can easily move it all around the house, can't you? And that's what the Lord said he'd do because of this lack of, of, of love and, and tenderness for the gospel. I think that's a, a very good thing for this congregation to keep in mind. How the Lord has blessed us. Years and years and years. How the Lord has, has blessed us. And this warning should make us pray. Not only, Lord, keep me doctrinally straight. Keep me faithful. But Lord, 
give me a heart that's tender, a heart that, that's tender for Christ. Give me a heart that loves Christ. Keep me with an understanding of how dependent I am upon the Lord, so I stay at his feet. I've seen many people fall into this trap. They know sound doctrine. They know true doctrine. And from every evidence I could see, I know that they, they, they believe Christ. They trust Christ. But they get so caught up in knowing this sound doctrine and somebody else doesn't that they seem to start depending on their knowledge of sound doctrine rather than trusting Christ, rather than, than having a, a love for the Lord. And when that happens, that's when the Lord removes the candlestick from one place to another. Now that, that is the congregation that, that Paul is writing to. Now look back at our text, Ephesians 1. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now Paul says he's writing this letter to the saints which are at Ephesus. And many of us might think, well, then this letter's got nothing to do with me. You know, I'm not, I'm not a saint. But you know, if you believe Christ, you are. Every believer is a saint. It's not just a, a very special few who did some spectacular things, you know, in their life, and after they die, we vote and decide, yes, you know, they're saints. Every believer is a saint. Every believer. We don't vote on you to decide if you're a saint or not, you know, after you die. Matter of fact, if you're not a saint before you die, you sure won't be one after. No, every believer is a saint right now. And the word saint means a holy one. It means one who's separated to God. And it means one who is worthy of veneration. Now again, I mean, you know, if we're being honest, we think, well, that's not me. <laughs> I know that none of us are holy. None of us are worthy of veneration by nature. I know that. But yet, there are people who believe God. Paul calls them saints. So they are saints. My question is this, and this is what I want to answer this morning. How does a person become a saint? Who are the saints of God? How does a person become a saint of God? Well, number one, a person is a saint of God by the will of God. Paul says an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul says, I'm an apostle and all of us are saints by the will of God. Now, all of salvation is dependent upon the will of God. It all comes from the will, the choice, the doing of God. Salvation is not a choice that man makes. You'll notice I never try to talk you into making a decision. I never try to talk you into doing something. A believer, absolutely, I don't know if you can use, use the word decide or not, but a, a believer, absolutely, of my own free will, so I believe Christ. I trust Christ. I'm not trusting anything else. But that's because God's already done a work in your heart. See, it's by the will of God that he gave you a new want to, a new nature. Salvation is a choice that God made before the foundation of the world. And salvation is a work that God performs for us and in us. God performed a work for us when Christ died on the cross to put away our sin, didn't he? And the Holy Spirit performs that work in us when he causes a new nature to be born in us that believes God. See, all of this is by the will of God. 
first saints became saints by the will of the Father, when before the foundation of the world he chose them unto salvation. God chose the people, and it was all by his will, his, his will alone, that they'd be saints. See that in verse 4? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be, not because we are holy, but that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So how do sinners become saints? How do we, how do we become holy ones? It's by the will of God. When he chose a people in Christ Jesus. You who believe were made holy. You are made to be a saint when the Father chose to put you in Christ instead of leaving you in yourself or leaving you in Adam. He puts you in Christ and you are holy. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1-2, he says he's writing to them who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's when you're sanctified, when you're put in Christ Jesus and you're called, you're called from the, by the gospel to be saints. So saints are holy in Christ, not by our works. See, that, that holiness, that's the doing and the will of God. Isn't it? All right, second, sinners are made saints when Christ died for them. Look at Colossians chapter 1. When Christ washed away our sin, we were made saints. If you don't have any sin, you've got to be a saint, don't you? You've got to be a holy one. Colossians 1 verse 21. And you, they were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That word holy there is the same word translated saint back over in our text. So the only way any of us can be a holy one is if the Son of God died for us and he put our sin away. If Christ didn't put our sin away, we can't be a saint. We have to always remain a sinner. So our, our holiness is the will of God, the doing of God when he put our sin away. Third, look at Titus chapter 3. Sinners are made saints when God the Holy Spirit causes a new holy nature to be born in us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, holiness is not how you act. Did you get that? Holiness is not how you act. Holiness is a nature. It's a nature in us that has no sin and can never sin. Now, the only way you and I can have that holy nature is if God the Holy Spirit causes it to be birthed in us. And that's what he does for his people. Now, I know we still have an old nature. Every believer knows this. I've got an old nature. I've got a nature that can't do anything but sin. You never knew that nearly as well. You really didn't know it in truth until you had a new man who could see the sin of the old man. Every believer knows I've got a wicked, vile nature that can't do anything but sin. But thank God, he willed, by his will, he willed and purposed to give his elect a holy nature too in the new birth. And one day, you know what's going to be the will of God? 
He's going to separate those two natures. And you're going to put the old man, the flesh, in the ground. And the new man's going to go be with the Lord. Right now, that new man that's born in you is able to walk right into heaven. And we can't do it in this body of flesh because it's so full of sin. But when God separates those two natures, that new man right now is qualified to walk right into the presence of the Father because he's holy. That was done by the will of God. All right, number two. A person is a saint because God makes them faithful to trust Christ alone. Paul says he's writing to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Every saint who's been made holy in Christ they know Christ is their holiness. They trust him to be their holiness. They trust Christ to be all of their salvation. They trust Christ to be everything the Father requires of me. And they're faithful to that. They're faithful to Christ. They're not looking for another hope. They're not looking for any other assurance. They're not trying to add something that they've done to Christ to make them more holy or more righteous or more accepted. They simply trust Christ. They trust him to be everything the Father requires of me. That's saving faith. Now, a saint, we look at ourselves. We don't see anything holy in ourselves. I don't see any holiness in me whatsoever. But a believer trusts that they are holy because they believe God. They believe God's word. That's what God says he's done. That's walking by faith, not by sight. I can't see anything holy in me, but I sure do believe it so. Because that's what God says in his word. Now, a saint is faithful. That is a, oh, it's so important to be faithful. This is, this is what's required of a steward, isn't it? To be faithful. I want to be faithful. A saint doesn't have to understand, it doesn't have to, and we don't, understand all the mysterious wonders of this thing we call salvation. The saints don't understand how could God possibly love me. Of all the people that have ever lived on this planet that God would choose to love me, I, I don't understand that. The saints, they've been born again, but they sure don't understand the mystery of it, do they? That's mysterious. They don't understand the Trinity. How can there be one God and three persons? I don't understand that. I sure do believe it. I sure do love it. I just... What a glorious God. I believe it, but I don't understand it. The saints don't understand God. I don't understand it. I don't understand. His nature is so different from me. I, I can't understand Him. God's eternal. I'm just a, such a finite speck of dust. I, I, can't, I can't understand God. I'm sinful. God's holy. I, I can't understand God. I don't understand why God does what he does. Some ask me what reason, why is God doing this? I got no idea. I mean, I got no idea. I cannot understand God. But Sean, I sure do trust him. <laughs> Honestly, I sure do love him. I don't understand all those mysteries, but we believe them because we believe Christ. I love this. A saint doesn't have to understand everything. Just believe. I tell you, this is a problem that we face. We try to understand it so that we'll believe it. Quit trying to understand it and just believe. Just believe God. That's faith. And these people are faithful. It's not just that they had faith once, they're faithful. You know, faith is a, is a continual thing. 
I believe God. I believe Christ. But a saint will keep believing Christ. They'll keep trusting Christ all the way to the end. And you know, there's several reasons why they, they, they will keep believing Christ. Number one, God won't let them believe anything but Christ. And number two, they don't want any other hope but Christ. I'm not looking for another one, are you? I'm not looking for another hope. I don't want any other hope because there's nothing else worth believing but Christ. So God's people, the saints, they stay faithful. This A saint believes this. Now and all the way to the end, I'm lost in Adam and redeemed in Christ. I'm dead in Adam. I've been given life in Christ. And I know this, I'd leave Christ and I'd perish in a heartbeat if left up to my own will, my own nature, but Christ keeps me from it. He keeps me by the power of his grace and I'm going to trust him to do it. Uh, I'm, I want to be faithful. I'm going to keep looking to him, but I'm not trusting on the strength of my faith. I'm struck, trusting on the strength of my Savior. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm hanging on for all I'm worth, but I'm not trusting on my strength to hang on. I'm trusting on his strength to hang on to me. Now, that faith, that's the doing, the will, and the gift of God, isn't it? That's how a person becomes a saint. It's by the will of God. All right, number three, a person is a saint by the grace of God. Paul says in verse two, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace is the free undeserved, unearned favor of God. Grace is God not giving us, or grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Well, I'll tell you this. I know some things right off I do not deserve. I do not deserve salvation. I do not deserve mercy. I do not deserve eternal life i do not deserve any blessing from god what i deserve is eternal damnation that's what we all deserve but god saves his people anyway that's salvation by grace even though they don't deserve it god saves them anyway i've said this before and i think this is a a very good definition of grace It's anyway, anyway, in spite of God saves all of his people anyway, in spite of all of our works. You know, we think we want to bring our works to God and he'll be happy with us. God saves his people in spite of those works. What we find out is those very best things that we've done that we try to bring to God. We think that makes me good. We'll find out that's the worst of the worst, though. That's what is is a filthy rag. And we try to bring those things to God and God saves his elect anyway. Oh, I love that. Salvation is not because of our works. I understand that that man is dead in sin. Their, Their mind is dark and black and they can't understand. And if you believe in any way that salvation is by works... It's simply because you don't believe the plainly stated word of God. I mean, nobody can take the Bible and make it in any way think salvation is by works. It says to the contrary so many times, salvation is not because of our works. It's in spite of our works. Salvation is all by grace 
and none of works. None. Grace is God's free gift. He saves us anyway. And there's another good definition of grace here. But God. There's us, but God. Look at chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past, this is our nature, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's us. Here's grace. But God. But God, who's rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you're saved. Hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, for by grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that's saving grace, but God. This is what I deserve, but God. He saved me anyway. And here's the thing that, that makes grace so glorious. And so comforting, gives such assurance to the hearts of God's people. God does not, and he cannot, show grace at the expense of his mercy. He cannot do it. You know, you, you almost, you, you almost, or God can't show grace at the expense of his justice. I said that wrong, didn't I? In order to, you know, we think, well, it would be awful gracious if God would just overlook my sin. Just ignore my sin, kind of sweep it under the rug and save me anyway. And I reckon that would be gracious, but it wouldn't be true, would it? It wouldn't be righteous. God cannot show grace at the expense of his truth and his justice. So in order to be gracious to his people, in order to give his people what they do not deserve, God had to satisfy his own justice for himself. We can't satisfy God's justice, so he did it for us. He gave Christ our substitute everything the elect deserve so he could be gracious to us and give us what we don't deserve. Our sin was fully punished in the death, the suffering of Christ our substitute. The very Son of God suffered everything we deserve so that justice would be satisfied and God would be gracious to his people. In other words, Christ had to die the death that we deserve. He had to suffer the penalty that we deserve so God could be gracious to his people and give them salvation. Give to them freely. That he could forgive their sin because their sin's already been punished. That he could give them eternal life because Christ died in our place. They didn't deserve that by their works, did they? Christ did that. Christ earned it by his obedience, his suffering, and his death. That's the only way God could be holy and still be gracious. Now that puts grace in a whole nother league than God just ignoring my sin, doesn't it? 
The fact that the father would kill his only begotten son in such a horrible way to be the sacrifice for my sin so that he could be gracious to the likes of me. That is the most amazing, most glorious thing I have ever heard. And it's true. It's not a fairy tale. That is is what God has done for all of his saints. By grace. It's the only way they can become saints. Thank God for his grace. Right here's the last thing. A saint has peace with God. Grace be to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the order of this. First came grace. Then came peace. See that? Grace is the foundation of all of our salvation. Grace is the foundation of every blessing we ever hope to receive from God. Grace is the source of salvation. And peace with God's the fruit of it. See, that's why grace came first, then peace. And it's easy to see where this peace comes from because Paul tells us grace and peace come from our Lord Jesus Christ. God's saints enjoy peace with God. You know why? It comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ's sacrifice made peace for us. Made peace with God. The blood of Christ took away the sin that made God angry. The the blood of Christ took away the, the, the sin that demanded God's justice. Justice is satisfied because of the blood of Christ. By by the death of Christ, what's left? Peace. The Father's not angry. There's no reason for him to be. The blood of Christ took his sin away. I know when we go through trials, sometimes we think, this is happening to me because God's angry with me. Worse yet, somebody else goes through trial and "Uh God's angry with him. Not if they're a believer, he's not. No, he's trying their faith. He's doing it for their good, but he's not angry with them. He took out his anger on our substitute. What's left for his people is peace with God. And that same blood, the blood of Christ, that made the Father be at peace, when it's applied to our hearts, when the the scripture talks about the blood of sprinkling, the blood sprinkled upon our hearts, what that's talking about is the new birth. When scripture talks about the the blood being applied to our hearts, it means God's given us a new heart. He doesn't take that old heart and change it. Because that old heart can't be changed. It's stone, it's flesh. It can't ever be anything else. It can't be changed. When the blood is sprinkled upon our hearts, applied to our hearts, it's talking about God giving us a new heart and a new birth. And that new heart is completely the opposite of the old one. That old heart cannot believe God. It will not believe God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. It, 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 it hates God. That new heart lovingly and willingly submits to Christ. Submits to Christ our King. Submits ourselves to his righteousness. And that heart trusts Christ. So there's peace. The sinner's not angry with God anymore either. We surrendered. There's no more war. Father's not angry. And I'm not either. And that gives peace that passes human understanding, doesn't it? If God's given you a new heart, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have peace with God because you're sane.
All right. Lord bless you.